Welcome. My name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors, and so good to see everybody. I just want to put a little extra plug in for the prayer project. I heard a report from my buddy Jeff Neuenschwander, who's the pastor of Central Community Church, and he was telling me uh, they're part of this prayer project as well, and they were telling me, he was telling me that he heard from a guy in Southern California who heard about what we were doing, and it inspired him to start a prayer walk amongst the churches in his community. And then Jeff told me that another pastor from Portland heard about what we were doing, saw our prayer cards, rebranded them to pray PDX, and now they're trying to start a prayer movement in Portland. So uh, what we're doing here, here and what we're a part of, and we kicked off uh, a couple Sundays ago, a big kickoff service here. It's a really cool thing, and it's not just reaching our community, but it's inspiring other churches to partner together. It's inspiring unity. And so I just want to encourage you, if you haven't been to one of the prayer rooms yet, uh, to go to PraySeattle.org. Go check out one of the prayer rooms. Maybe you're like, that's not really my thing. It's okay. It's built for not your thing. And there's lots of prayer prompts when you go in the room. It's just great to go to other spaces of prayer and worship in our city and be united and pray for this week our government officials, those who shape a lot of life here in the city. So keep it up. Keep doing it. Participate in any way that you can. Go one step beyond comfortable, whatever that is for you, and participate in the 40 Days of Prayer Project. So very, very cool. Um, Let me pray for us, and then we'll get into our text for the week. Heavenly Father, God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, that you consider us is beyond our grasp, that you think of us, that you care for us, and that you love us is beyond anything that we deserve. It is by definition grace. And you've gone so much further than just thinking of us. You sent your son into the world, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled in our midst, lived the life that we cannot live, died the death that we should all die, and rose to life again so that we might have new life. We sit here, we stand here in awe of that kind of love. Teach us to love like you love. Teach us from your word how to respond to this kind of grace. Teach us now, Father, through your spirit, by your son, in Jesus' name, amen. So if you're new with us, we're in the gospel of John. John is the fourth gospel written about two decades after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and so John gives us some insight or some clarifying stories that we don't see in the first three Gospels. If you just read the first three Gospels, you'll see a lot of parallelism, and then John has some new stories. And today we're looking at another story that's not in any of the synoptics, and that's a story about a conversation between Jesus and a religious elite leader in Jerusalem named Nicodemus. So we're going to be looking at that conversation, and we've been uh, calling this series subtitle, Uh, What exactly 
do you think I believe? And so John has been answering that for us. You might imagine after two decades of people hearing the gospel, hearing the good news, reading the other uh, accounts of Jesus' life, John then comes and says, it seems that you guys are living and acting in such a way that you might not know exactly what it is that we believe as Christians, as those who were with Jesus, as those who heard Jesus' teaching firsthand. And so John is clarifying and expanding in his gospel, his biography, which is much more theological. It's like a theological drama that he is unfolding so that we might know exactly what to believe. And so what's interesting in this account, Jesus himself is going to challenge Nicodemus because clearly Nicodemus doesn't know exactly what Jesus is here to do or exactly what Jesus claims that salvation is. And so we get a great little picture of this idea. You might say this to a friend of yours, you know, in a very loving tone. What exactly do you think I believe about Jesus and about salvation and about religion? Because oftentimes people assume they know what you believe. And just to invite them to articulate what it is that they think you believe might really open a conversation to something much greater. And we have an example of this here with Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, the title of my sermon, if you're taking notes, and if you're not taking notes, you could take notes. There are, um, (laughs) not that you have to, but these little blue books, and there's some in the back. Um, If you didn't get them, that's a, take those. We've got a bunch extra, so it's actually just the Gospel of John it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a scripture journal, so it's just the Gospel of John with room for notes. Take one of those and bring it back with you every week, and, and then by the end of this series, you'll have all these amazing notes on the Gospel of John. So those you can see on the back, uh, by the windows there, they're around. But those are for you. So if you wanted to, you could take notes. And if you were, you could write the title of this sermon as, Jesus Makes Everyone a Student. Jesus Makes Everyone a Student. A student. Now, uh, before I read the passage, um, I wanted to see if anybody caught my mistake in the weekly email. Did anybody catch my mistake in the weekly email? I know you all read it several times before deleting it. You would never, never just check the box and erase. I know you wouldn't do it. Did anybody catch it? Okay. So, in the email I said this. I said, this week's passage recounts one of the most famous conversation, conversations that has ever taken place under the sun. Under the sun. So, let's read the passage and then we'll ask the question again. Did you catch my mistake? Here we go. We're in John chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, there's these black pew Bibles in front of you. And we're going to be on page 943. Or you could look in your prayer journal. It'll be on like page three or four, and this is what the Word of God says. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him, that came to Jesus, at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do Unless God were with him, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. 
Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. Truly I tell you, we speak what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, here's where the big debate comes everybody knows the next verse, this is probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16. There is debate about whether or not Jesus said these words or John is now narrating, adding his theological summary. I'm going to ruin it for you. I actually think these are now John's words, not that Jesus didn't say things like this, But the tone changes, and one of the ways we know, or one of the ways scholars think this probably is John not now quoting Jesus, but adding his own um, theological summary, is that Jesus always calls God Father. And here it says, for God. So it's sort of a strange talking in the third person here, because Jesus is himself God and fully aware of that. And so... Because of that, I'm not preaching verses 16 to 21, but I want to read them to you. We're preaching that next week, okay? Too much to do all in one week. So we'll come back to this. So I think we can think of Jesus finishing his comments, though I do believe the conversation was probably longer, and and this is a summary in itself of the conversation. But I just want to warn you that. (laughs) That's how I'm going to teach it. Okay, so he's just said, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Think new paragraph now. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. See, Jesus usually talks about himself as the Son of Man. And here, I think it's John talking about himself as, the son of, as Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus is both Son of Man and Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, And avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his work may be shown to be accomplished 
by God. So we'll come back to 16 to 21 next week and unpack this most famous uh, scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But I wanted to read that because it's important to, John is sort of giving us insight into this exchange with Nicodemus. Now, did you catch what the, the error was in my email? It's a, under the stars. Under the stars, I should have said. The most famous conversation that's ever taken place, under the stars. So Nicodemus represents, as John summarizes at the end there, this person who is an archetype for all of us. He was a real person, but he's also an archetype of this person who's living in this twilight area between light and darkness. So Nicodemus must decide which way to go. He has this encounter with Jesus who claims to be the light, who's teaching him things he's never heard before. And yet, he has a choice. He can go into the day or into the night. And so there's this, we see this again, we saw it in the prologue, this light and darkness, which is going to be a theme that comes out in John's gospel. There's day and there's night. Do you want to walk in the day? Do you want to walk in the light? Do you want to stay in the night, in the darkness? And Jesus presents us with that option. We see Nicodemus here, he's, he's drawn to this light. He sees that there's something about this Jesus. And he wants to know more, so he's drawn to it, yet... He's not able to let go of the darkness, not fully. So to understand why that is, we've got to know who Nicodemus is. So who is Nicodemus? Jesus uses three titles, or John uses, John and Jesus use three titles to address Nicodemus. The first is a man of the Pharisees, right there in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. What were, who were the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were a group of Jews who began to take the law and Moses very, very seriously, and they kind of formed a brotherhood of sorts. And then this brotherhood became formalized, and this became sort of a teaching school within Judaism. They weren't the only teaching school. There were the Sadducees, and there were the Pharisees. There were Zealots. There were sort of groups of people, almost you could think of denominations of people, that had different characteristics and different ways of being a devout Jewish uh, person. And the Pharisees were known for taking the Mosaic Log and the Torah very seriously. So they were very um, law-abiding. Um, they created applications for the Torah and how to live it in their current day. So they'd say, if this is the law, what does that mean in our day today, and they would create teachings about that. Those oral traditions then became for formalized in what's called the Mishnah. And so these were serious, serious religious people. They, they took the word of God very, very seriously. And so that's who Nicodemus is. He's one of the group of leaders of the Pharisees. Now, what's the second title? It says here that he was a ruler of the Jews. Now, that's a unique title to just being a part of the Pharisees' uh, party. He was, most likely, this is why John gives him the title, 
he was one of 70 representatives who were part of the Sanhedrin. So that would have been the ruling council, think of almost like congressmen or senators, for the people who are Jewish living in Israel. Now, Rome occupied Israel, but Israel still got to manage their own affairs to some degree on their own. And so this would have been this ruling council called the Sanhedrin. So not only was Nicodemus a serious religious man, he took the word of God seriously, he took the law seriously, he wanted to live the law out in his life, but he was also a political figure. He also had political power. People looked to him. People revered him. He was a ruler of the Jews. Now later, down in verse 10, you'll see Jesus refer to Nicodemus as, you are a teacher of Israel. This is the third title we have. He's also a teacher of Israel. He's known by his peers, by the people, as a great teacher. So he probably uh, was revered in that sense as well. So it's important to understand this. Nicodemus is not your ordinary Jew. Nicodemus has much to lose in his encounter with Jesus. Nicodemus, I would say, has pretty deep-rooted convictions and ideas, and he doesn't have a lot of reason to give those up because he has power, because he has a claim, because he has a real brotherhood or family to lose. So in this conversation, Jesus is going to be, I mean, it's kind of funny, right? Like, Nicodemus says to him, right in that first verse, Rabbi, very honoring, right? Rabbi, he says, I know that you are a teacher who comes from God, for no one could do and perform the signs that you do unless God were with him. And Nicodemus is not saying, I believe that you're God in the flesh. He's just saying, I believe God's with you in a special way. So he's giving him much honor. And it's funny, Jesus doesn't return the favor. He just goes straight in, to blowing up and annihilating Nicodemus' mental models. What does he say? Jesus replied to this very nice introduction, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Implication, Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, nice to meet you too, Jesus. So sometimes, I'd always been taught this passage, or you'd maybe heard this story before, maybe not, and you could read it as if Nicodemus is primarily bewildered and confused and, and, and doesn't quite know what's going on. Yes, that's true, but I also think we need to read this passage as Nicodemus being a little defensive and maybe even defiant because he's been knocked on his heels He's come to exchange with who he thinks is a fellow rabbi ideas about the kingdom of God, which are the kingdom of God is how does God rule and reign in the world? Nicodemus would have thought primarily that the Messiah, God would come and send the Messiah to reinstitute Israel as a sovereign nation, so perhaps as a military leader or a political leader or a great prophet who was all of these things, but the main part was to establish the kingdom of God as the people of Israel in the land of Israel. And Jesus is coming in and totally annihilating that mental model and saying, no, you have no idea what the kingdom of God is. 
So I want you to read this maybe in a slightly different way than you've read it before, which is that Nicodemus, in the questions he's asking, is not so much just a curious, though I think he's curious, a curious, open person, but maybe a little open and maybe a little defensive. Because when two rabbis would come together, the thought would be that they would exchange ideas and Jesus just goes right for the jugular. That's why I said in my email, which as I noticed earlier you all read, I put a video link from a great reenactment of this. In that reenactment, the posture of Nicodemus is very much one of a seeker open, perhaps. But I also think he's a prideful man. So don't cut off the pride of Nicodemus. Because if you cut off the pride of Nicodemus, then you won't be aware of your own pride. And if he's the archetype for those who come to Jesus, and you think he had no pride coming into the conversation, you'll miss what Jesus is trying to do, how he's trying to open his eyes so that he can see that the kingdom of God is near, and the kingdom of God is Jesus himself. So I think Nicodemus has pride. So when he says, if you look at verse 9, how can these things be? This is the last words we have recorded from John, from Nicodemus. How can these things be? Don't just hear that as, I'm so baffled. This is amazing new teaching. Hear that as, how can these things be? This is ridiculous. And then he walks away, back into the night. So he has something to lose. He has his own pride. He is a Pharisee, which is a big deal to be invited into that brotherhood. He is a ruler in the Sanhedrin. That's a big deal. And he's a teacher who people revere. And so he walks away and says, how can these things be? So who is Jesus then in Nicodemus' eyes? In Nicodemus' eyes, when he schedules this meeting, he probably went to some of Jesus' disciples says that I want to meet Jesus and I want to do it at night. Maybe that's because he didn't want his other Sanhedrin members or the Pharisees to know. But also, maybe he realized if they did this publicly, he wouldn't get the kind of exchange he wanted. So read verse 2. Nicodemus, this man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Okay. So, for sure we can say that Jesus in Nicodemus' eyes was an anomaly. He was someone that was unique in all the other teachers who had come through. It wasn't like there weren't other itinerant teachers who came through claiming to be things. In fact, we have record of other so-called messiahs who claimed to be the long-anticipated messiah. But Jesus was an anomaly. He says, I, I know there's something else going on here. It seems that you're a teacher from God. So he is personally curious. Maybe he was asked by other members of the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin to investigate who this Jesus was. So perhaps that's why he's come. We don't know exactly. But he does see Jesus curiously. I say this because I think 
if we don't understand these dual motivations, we might miss the context and therefore misinterpret this interaction. Curious, prideful, perhaps sent on a mission to learn more, all these things are working together. That's always how it is when we come to Jesus. No one's coming with only one motivation. There could be lots of ways and lots of reasons that we've stepped into a conversation about who Jesus is and stepped into a conversation with him. Perhaps we need something from him. Perhaps we're curious. Perhaps we just want to understand his teaching so that we can move beyond it and move past it. And perhaps the vagueness of Nicodemus' motivation is part of God's intent in inspiring John to write this story in this way. Surely he could have given more detail about why Nicodemus had come. He didn't have to leave it so vague. He didn't have to leave Nicodemus in the story just asking how can these things be and then never hearing from him again. But I think he does this because he wants all of us to be able to see ourselves in Nicodemus. Jesus makes everyone a student. Even the greatest teachers of Israel became students in Jesus' presence. Even the greatest political powers, like Nicodemus, and we'll see like Pilate, become students in front of Jesus. When we encounter his radical, paradoxical, unnatural teaching and truth, we really only have two options. And I see both of them in Nicodemus. The first is openness. When we stand before Jesus as teacher and we are student, we can be open. We can say to ourselves, maybe I don't know the way the world really works. Maybe I don't fully understand how salvation will occur. Maybe I don't know everything that I thought I knew. Maybe I need to know more. There's a part of Nicodemus that's open to that. But the other option that we have is to become defensive. When we're put in the role of student, particularly when it's unnatural for us or we've been the teacher for so long, we can become defensive. We hear his teaching, it's paradoxical, it's unnatural, it's not the way I thought things were, and we become defensive. This is too absurd to be true. This is too strange for me to accept. There is no way that God is like this. There is no way that this is how salvation works. Something must be wrong with this strange teaching. It must be wrong. Because I never would have thought that up myself. That's the defensiveness we see in Nicodemus. Perhaps there's a little bit of both of those in you as well. Perhaps when you stand before Jesus as student, you're a little bit open, but a little bit defensive. Join the club. <laughs> Now, just to 
tell you what I think. The text doesn't tell us this. This is what I think about what happened eventually to Nicodemus. Not right here, but I believe when Jesus made Nicodemus a student, it stirred something in him so profoundly and deeply that he couldn't let it go. He couldn't shake it. We see Nicodemus show up two more times in John's gospel. So some people say, did Nicodemus become a Christian? Did he become a follower of Jesus? We don't know for sure, but I expect to see Nicodemus one day in God's kingdom. And part of the reason is, we don't see any other of the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin named by personal name. And God has this funny thing about writing his children's name in books. So I think Nicodemus' name is written for us in this book three times because God wants us to know he's one of mine. So that's what I think happened to Nicodemus. I don't think it happened here because I think he left being a bit defensive and a bit open. And then that kept him exploring and considering until eventually he surrendered. Now, so let's just fast forward, but let's come back to the text and stay in the text, okay? So, in this conversation, what does Jesus say that Nicodemus must do to be a part of the kingdom of God? To see the kingdom of God, to inherit the kingdom of God, to be a part of the kingdom of God. What does he say? He says, you must be born again. Verse 3, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus asks, how can anyone be born when he is old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time? and be born. This is wild. This is crazy. How can this be? It's almost a joke to Nicodemus. He's not actually wondering if we go back into our mother's womb. He's saying that's how ridiculous it is to say something like this. So, what is Jesus talking about? Jesus replies, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, do you see the parallelism? So, first thing Jesus says, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then the second time he says, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So how do you see? How do you enter? Born again, water and Spirit. Synonymous. So to be born again is to be born of water and spirit. What does it mean to be born of water and spirit? Jesus goes on. Whatever is born flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you these things, that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Okay. So to be born again means to be born of the Spirit, and to be born of water and the Spirit. Okay, so what does that mean? Now remember, Jesus is talking to a Pharisee, and many of the Pharisees had memorized all of the Torah, word for word. They'd also memorized much of the prophets. And Jesus is actually, in a way, challenging Nicodemus, how can you not know what I'm talking about? Don't you remember what one of your greatest prophets said? 
Ezekiel said this. Throw it up on the screen here, Urson. Ezekiel 36, 24 to 28. What did Ezekiel say? He said this. Prophesying about the future of God's kingdom coming. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you, born of water, and you will be clean to cleanse you of your sin. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. So that's born of water. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will live in the land and I will give you your fathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. Spirit. You must be born of water and of spirit. You must be born again. I will give you a new heart because your heart is like stone. It's like a fortress. It's like a defense. You will not let me enter your life, and I will give you a new heart that is soft. We just did the Alpha Weekend last night. Nikki talked about this. I love the analogy he uses. He envisions this being born again as like your heart is like a sponge, like a crusty old sponge, right? It's hard as a rock. But then you submerge it, you baptize it in the Spirit, and you take it out, and it's just gushing and overflowing with water. It's soft. Love that analogy. That's what Ezekiel predicted would happen. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, now that I've come, this is what's going to happen. You must be born again. You must be born of water and the Spirit, just like Ezekiel said. You must have a new heart placed in you. You must be born again. There's this spiritual rebirth that must happen. No, of course you don't need to go back into your mother's womb. Of course not. And of course Nicodemus knew that. It's not what he was saying. He's saying, how can you not know this? This has been predicted from long ago, that you will have a new heart. So flesh cannot evolve into spirit. This is no mere mental evolution that Jesus is talking about. He's not just saying you can think your way into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you're a very smart man. You're a teacher of the law. But you cannot think your way into this. You must surrender to the Spirit who will baptize you and turn that crusty old heart into a soft, gushing, overflowing with love, new heart. The Spirit cannot be taken. The Spirit is given as a gift. And this is the baptism that Jesus talked about as well. Jesus said, John, my cousin John, the Baptist, remember we talked about him in chapter 1? He came baptizing with water, that's the cleansing, but I came baptizing with water and the Spirit, Jesus will say. But the Spirit is given by God the Father and by God the Son. It is not something that you can accomplish on your own. Now think about this for a Pharisee. I mean, this guy followed the letter of the law with every part of his life. 
He might not have thought he was perfect, but he said, everybody looked at him and said, if anybody could get into the kingdom of God by following the law, it would be Nicodemus. And Jesus comes to him and says, sorry, you're out of luck. Unless I give you my spirit, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Whoa. And how can you not know this? Have you not read your Bible? Jesus says. My father's been telling people this is the way it will be. And yet you can't understand what I'm saying. That's why Jesus goes on to say, we've been testifying to you about earthly things that we've been doing. You don't believe us then. How are you going to believe us when we talk about heavenly things? This is a heavenly thing. This baptism of the Spirit, this new heart, this is a heavenly thing. So of course it's going to be hard for you to understand. You don't even believe our testimony when we tell you the earthly things, the things that you can see happening. These are things that you can only get from above. Okay, so look at verse 8, back in John chapter 3. Verse 8 says this. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, he uses this metaphor of wind or breath. So you think about the leaves rustling. This is what he's talking about. You can't see the wind, but you see its effects. So you don't know what the Spirit is doing. You just see who the Spirit is affecting. You see people's hearts going from stone to flesh. That's what he's talking about. Again, you don't have control of this, Nicodemus. This isn't something that the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin or teachers of Israel can control. This is beyond your pay grade. Again, another shot across the bow. You think you're powerful, you're not. God is going to do what God is going to do. The wind is going to blow where it pleases. You either get on board with what the Spirit of God is doing, or you miss the boat. That's what he's saying. But he's also pointing to another Ezekiel passage. And that's coming right after the last one he quoted. So Nicodemus should have seen this coming and didn't. Ezekiel 37 says this. Let me read it to you. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 to 6. Ezekiel prophesies, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by his spirit and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. So this is a a prophetic vision that Ezekiel's having. He led me all around them, all the bones. There were a great many of them on the surface of the valley, and they were very dry. Then he said to me, then he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I replied, Lord God, only you know. He said to me, This is God. God said to me, Prophesy concerning these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says to these bones. I will cause breath, same word for wind, to enter you and you will live. I will put tendons on you, make flesh grow on you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you so that you come to life. Then you will know that I 
am the Lord. Again, teacher of the law, don't you know what I'm talking about? Ezekiel prophesied this. Joel chapter 2, Joel prophesied this. I will breathe again into my people, and these dry bones, these crusty religious bones will come to life, and they will be living again with the very breath of God inside them. Just like God breathed into the dust in Genesis chapter 2 and formed man. I will breathe again, he'll say, and bring new life, even greater than that life, new life. I will live in them by my spirit. That was the prophecy. And Jesus is saying, that's what's happening right now, Nicodemus. And the spirit and the wind and the breath of God, it fills who it wants to fill. Do you want to be filled with this spirit? What does Nicodemus say? Again, I feel for Nicodemus. This is unlike anything anyone's ever said except it was prophesied. But no one like in his day. And so he says, verse 9, how can these things be? And it's the last that we hear in in this story from Nicodemus. Jesus replies, aren't you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, but you don't accept our testimony. If, you have, if we have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if we tell you about heavenly things? And then he goes on to say this interesting statement. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is the title Jesus likes to use of himself, Son of Man. And it's a reference back to, again, a prophetic text in Daniel about the Son of Man coming. But he's clearly referring to himself as the Messiah, as the prophecy fulfilled of Jan- Daniel chapter 7. And he's saying there's only one man who actually comes and goes from heaven. What he's talking about here is he's the only one who has access to this kind of truth and this kind of teaching. He's the only one that hears directly from the Father because he was with the Father before he came and put on flesh and dwelt among us. That's what he's getting at here. He's saying, Nicodemus, you need to trust me. I'm unlike any teacher you've ever met. I'm not just another itinerant prophet teacher. I'm actually the one who was with God and is God and who has come and brought truth that is heavenly. Wow. There are things, Nicodemus, that you can only learn, you can't find out. Does that make sense? There are things, brothers and sisters, that you can only learn by listening to Jesus, you can't find out on your own. And the question is, will you trust that Jesus is the Son of Man, the only one who sat with the Father and brings truth from the Father? Or will your pride, will your stubbornness, Will your inability to understand these things apart from sitting underneath Jesus as teacher keep you from accepting them and receiving the Spirit and being born again? That's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. He's saying, I'm here for all. 
and I'm here for you, Nicodemus. But you must understand that this is not something you can control. You must receive. Now, one angle I want you to see here, and I'd never thought about this, because sometimes this language about being reborn can be a, a little esoteric and a little immaterial, right? Like, what does this mean? And I thought about this week, how it obviously is a spiritual, the spiritual dynamic is first and foremost, right? Jesus says, you must receive a baptism of water in the Spirit. You must be born of water in the Spirit. The wind must blow and it goes where it pleases. So this is definitely a gift from God to be, be born again. But I do believe that we can resist to a degree, or at least for a time, this being reborn. And there's lots of reasons, different for each of us, but common to a lot of us, of why we don't do that. And one of the things I saw this week more clearly than I had before is that part of being reborn is to be born again into a new family. Okay? Leslie Newbegin says this, to experience the kingship of God as a present reality is not simply a matter of illumination. So it's just not receiving the new ideas. It's a matter of regeneration. It is not just seeing, but a new being. It is not just seeing, but a new being. A theology which would separate seeing from being has debarred itself from reality at the onset. Here's what Newbegin is saying. Jesus uses both. Do you want to see the kingdom of God and you want to enter the kingdom of God? What Jesus is offering to Nicodemus and to all of us is to be reborn and have a new mind, but also a new being. And part of this new being is to have a new identity. Part of this new being, the New Testament tells us, would be have a new citizenship. You used to be a citizen of Israel, Nicodemus. Now I want you to be a citizen of heaven. You used to long for the kingdom of Israel. Now I want you to long for the kingdom of God and his son, Jesus Christ. So there is a new identity, a new citizenship, which is to mean that you have a new name. You have a new family. And you must be reborn into that family. The language of adoption is all over the New Testament. You must be adopted into a new family. Now think about this. Nicodemus wants to come to Jesus secretively. Why? Maybe he wanted, like we said, to have a private conversation and not have all the public watching. But also, maybe he feared what people might think or assume about him interacting with Jesus. He didn't want to be kicked out of his current family for seeming to be supportive of Jesus. Who was his family? The Pharisees were his family. The Sanhedrin were his family. The upper class Jewish elites were his family. And those people didn't like Jesus. He was a threat to them. So imagine what it would have been like for him to leave those secure, probably his whole life he'd been in those social classes, to be part of a new family. Who is in Jesus' family at this time? You have prostitutes, fishermen, low to middle class. You got a tax collector, socioeconomically higher but hated by everyone. Like, that's your new family? Jesus says, you've got to be born into that family. You have to receive adoption into this family. You cool with that? Jesus, Nicodemus says, how could that be? How could that be what I have to give up? 
So to be born again is a, is a spiritual, from above reality, absolutely. But it has these tangible, physical, life in this world consequences that are hard for people to come to terms with. Jesus is offering him life from above, a heavenly family. And Jesus will say, it is full of riches like you could not believe. We'll sing a song today that says, 10,000 charms come with being a part of Jesus' family. But honestly, a lot of that's delayed gratification. It often means that in this life, you're poor, outcast, looked down on. You may lose friends. Your family may not talk to you. This is real. If you were here on Christmas, this is Shruti's story. Are you willing to give that up, Nicodemus? Are you willing to give that up, Shruti? Are you willing to give that up, Kurt? That your family needs to change. And your family now, you may be rich, you could be poor. You might be well-connected and networked. You might be isolated and outcast. Are you willing to accept being reborn into a new family? This is the question posed to Nicodemus. Yes, the Spirit is the one that does it, but you have to choose, are you willing to be relabeled, rebranded, reborn? Some of you know exactly the feeling that Nicodemus was wrestling with. Let me read you what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus knows truly, and you see him use that truly, I tell you, at the, ver- at the beginning of verse 29, Mark 10. Truly, I tell you. Jesus understands how hard of a decision this is. Truly, I tell you. There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields. Sometimes you have to give up your fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first Nicodemus will be last. And the last, one day, will become first. So this is why, Jesus says, it's really hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Because the rich have to give up a lot. Guess what most of you are? Rich beyond comprehension for your age for your talents and skills. And he might tell you to give that up so that you can become last in the family of God. So you understand what it's like to be Nicodemus. But the promise here in Mark 10 is that, hey, not only will you have eternal life in the age to come, which Jesus tells Nicodemus, he also says, even now, at this time, verse 30, at this time, You'll have houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, even though with persecution. So this is the great thing. We're, we're, we're workshopping a 15th principle. <laughs> and we did it at the 14 principles class. 
Uh, I want to share it with you just briefly. You have to come to the class to learn more about it. But uh, you will get the trivia right because this will be the text. <laughs> yes, you might have to leave Nicodemus, your social class, your elite status, your reverence as a teacher to follow Jesus. But guess what you're going to gain? Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields because you're a part of the family of God. So the principle is, of course, no more airport Ubers. Principle 15. (laughs) What do I mean by that? The children of God should never have to pay $50 to get a ride to the airport. Look around you. Each of these people are your brother or your sister, and you can call them. They're your mothers. You'd call your mother if she lived next door to you to take you to the airport, wouldn't you? Say 50 bucks. If Jesus' promise is true, there should be no more airport Ubers. And there should be a lot of other things we don't have to pay somebody to do for us. You're sick, you need a meal, you've got mothers and brothers and sisters all over this city, whether they live on the other side of the world or the other side of the country or the other side of the 520 bridge. You've got mothers, brothers, sisters, houses, fields, because you're a part of the family of God. That's right now. And, he says, you'll have eternal life to come. So yeah, Nicodemus, it seems like you give up a lot, but you don't know the fullness of what I'm doing, Nicodemus. I'm bringing all the nations together into one family, and you'll have mothers and brothers and sisters like you wouldn't believe, and they're going to have those soft hearts, probably unlike most of your Pharisee friends. This is the the great promise of God, and it's both for now and for the life to come. And we'll get to talk next week more about the life to come. But I wanted to point it out right now. It's full of goodness. Okay, the last thing Nicodemus says. How does this process begin? How does this rebirth process begin? Jesus says this other strange thing. What does he say? He says, verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. What is he talking about here? Remember, he's talking to a Pharisee who knows the Old Testament. He knows the Torah and the law. And what does he say? He brings up a story of Israel in Numbers chapter 21. Let me read this to you real quick. Numbers 21, verse 4 to 9. This is a story about Israel's now been freed by God through the Exodus, and now they're wandering about in the wilderness And this is what it says. Then they set out to Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. So they're wandering about. But the people became impatient because of the journey. The desert is hot. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? We'd rather be back in slavery than burning in this heat. There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food, manna from heaven. God is literally raining bread on them, and they're complaining it's a bit dry. But this is what we do. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take away the snakes from us. And Moses interceded for the people. He went to God, and he said, they're repentant. They realize that they've sinned against you, God. Please take away the snakes. So then the Lord said to Moses, Moses, make a snake image 
and mounted on a pole. So he made this bronze image of a snake. He put it on a pole. Guess why the medical symbol we have is a, is a snake? Okay, there you go. It's all around us. It's the air we breathe. When anyone who is bitten looks at this pole with the bronze snake, he will recover. He'll be healed. So Moses made a bronze snake, mounted it on a pole, and whenever someone was bitten and looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. Jesus is referring to this and saying, I am the new bronze snake. I will be lifted up, and anyone who turns their eyes to me and gazes on me and trusts that it's God that has told me to go and be lifted up will be healed. How is Jesus lifted up? Well, we'll find out later he's lifted up in two ways. He's lifted up in an earthly sense because he's hung from a cross. The suffering servant died in our place for our sin. One man died so that all might be saved. The perfect sacrifice. He's also lifted up in a heavenly sense. His victorious resurrection exalts him as the Redeemer and the Savior the one who finished the work of salvation. So he is lifted up in both senses, on the cross and through the resurrection. He's lifted up and now exalted the name above every name. And when we run to him, when we come to him, we can be saved if we turn our eyes and look to Jesus and trust in Jesus, our crucified Lord and Savior, the one who has beat sin and beaten death, We too are healed from the effects of this sickness, which is our pride, which is Nicodemus' pride, by Jesus as the medicine, his humility, his sacrifice. And the reward, eternal life. We'll talk about this next week. Not just in quantity, not just everlasting life, but in quality, heavenly life. A life with a soft heart, a life with God's Spirit living in you, a life of joy, not just happiness. This is the life that Jesus offers. If we turn and look to him, high and lifted up on the cross, if we come as sinners, repentant, knowing we've rebelled in our pride against God, and we come humbly and say, save us, you are the healer. We are sick, not just physically, but spiritually We need restoration. Help us, Lord Jesus. This is the offer that Jesus makes to Nicodemus. And Jesus wants to have a one-on-one conversation with each and every human being he's created. He wants to have a one-on-one conversation with you. Will you let Jesus be your teacher? Will you let him be the exalted one, the healer that you turn and trust Or, will you become defensive? This just seems so strange. I would never do this if I were God. I would do it some other way. What will you choose? Let's pray.